Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Michael Haken. He is professor of church history at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also the director of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies. His books include The Baptist Story, From English Sect to Global Movement. Uh, his new book is Amidst, Amidst Us, Our Beloved Stands, Recovering Sacrament in the Baptist Tradition, our topic today. Welcome, Professor Haken. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Thank uh, you. First, just give, give us a layout. What does the Fuller Center for Baptist Studies do? Yeah, it's, uh, it's really a research center that uh, is designed to um, uh, reflect upon and uh, encourage um, um, historical investigation of the Baptist tradition, particularly as it relates to uh, the 18th century, which is when Andrew Fuller, who was a Baptist leader of that period, uh, lived. Um, he was an English Baptist, very close friend of uh, William Carey, who's probably much better known. And so we have conferences, we do occasional publications. We're also engaged in supporting um, a thing called the Andrew Fuller Works Project, which is the uh, the producing of a critical edition of the works of Andrew Fuller, who was, he was a major theologian in his day. And um, it's quite similar. It's being published by De Gruyter, Walter De Gruyter Publishing House, uh, with offices in Berlin and Boston. And um, it's very similar to the Yale edition of uh, the works of uh, Jonathan Edwards. Mm -hmm. Very good. That'll be going for a while. Yeah, we... Yeah, it's probably been about 15 years we've had that conceived, and then uh, we've we've it's probably the last six years we've actually seen books come to print. So we have uh, four or five in um, we have about five that are actually published, and then uh, we have another couple on the way. It's taken a lot longer than I thought it would. Um, I had expected that it would have been done by now, but it's this sort of thing is is quite laborious. Yeah. And um, but I think very well worth the um, the product in the end. Yeah. Your book. Tell us where the title comes from and why you chose it. Yeah, the title is from a hymn by the Baptist uh, Victorian Baptist preacher uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and um, the 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 um, the hymn is in some ways kind of unique among Victorian Baptists in the Victorian Baptist world because it it stresses the presence of Christ at the table. 
um, you know, mitzvah is our beloved stance. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hymn for the Lord's Supper. And um, uh, that was unusual in his day because for much of the 19th century, Baptists on both sides of the Atlantic uh, were what we would describe as Zwinglian in their understanding of the table. The table was a place of remembrance um, in which there was a stress that Christ was not present. Uh, we were remembering what he did, um, etc. And so the hymn then uh, is a kind of a um, very, um, you know, it's an accurate shorthand form of stressing what had been the, the dominant view among Baptists prior to the 18, uh, 19th century, which is a much more uh, an emphasis on the spiritual presence of Christ at the table. And so the, 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 the book is designed to, in some ways, to recover uh, that, that, that older perspective. Yeah. You, you go way back, several hundred years, and overall, uh, as you described in, in the, opening, the opening sections, what generally was the place of the sacraments, or ordinances, as, as the word would have it, in early Baptist doctrine? Yeah, I mean, they're very, very significant. Um, the, uh, in fact, uh, so much so that the, you know, the Baptists were willing to separate from others of like-mindedness, you know, say, congregationalists, um, over the issue of um, who can be baptized. And then there was significant debates among Baptists about the relationship of the ordinances. So, um, you know, can a person receive on an ongoing basis within a Baptist church um, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or the ordinance of the Lord's Supper if they have not been properly baptized. And so 90% of the Baptists for probably the first couple of hundred years of, of Baptist life would have argued that a believer's baptism is a necessary prerequisite to reception of the table um, as an ongoing experience within a local church. Uh, it's known as closed communion. Um, and um, so that obviously puts a very high emphasis on baptism um, as a crucial part of a believer's or Christian's experience. And then uh, the Lord's Supper, um, it's very evident if you read letters, diaries, let alone formal treatises, that the Lord's table was a high point. Participation at the table was a very strong high point for for Baptists in terms of their Christian life. It was very much a means of grace, uh, a vehicle by which God strengthened them, encouraged them, enabled them to persevere as Christians. Um, by the late 19th century, this is where Spurgeon, Spurgeon's him of the title of which I use in the, uh, the, the, the main title of the book, um, is so extraordinary because it's so unusual. By the late 19th century, Baptists have abandoned this understanding of the table. And the table has become, it's something that they continue to do, but it's no, it no longer holds the place of prominence it had done for a couple of hundred years. You note that of all the communities that came out of Puritanism, you mentioned Congregationalism along with the Baptists. Uh, 
why was it that only one of them baptized believers? I mean, what was baptism a, a fundamental point of departure for the person from, 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 from the Catholic Church? Yeah, I mean... I mean the the issue. I mean it, it first arises in the Reformation, the 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 emergence of the, what we call Anabaptism now, and the the issue there had to do with relationship between church and state issues. Um, the um, the Anabaptists were deeply concerned about the the role of the state in relation to the church and. They were convinced that the the mainstream, or as we technically call them, the magisterial reformers, who would end up becoming the architects of, say, Lutheranism, uh, the Reformed churches, uh, Anglicanism, you know, people like Luther, uh, Calvin, uh, Thomas Cramner, that these men had gotten something fundamentally wrong, which is that the state and the church should not be united in the way that they had been during the medieval period. And so the Anabaptists then um, began to, uh, instead of local parish churches where every every individual was baptized within the radius, you know, of whatever, five miles of that local parish church, um, and this was the pattern throughout Western Europe, uh, the Anabaptists began to argue for the necessity of believers' churches, that churches were to be composed of people who voluntarily uh, embraced the gospel. And so uh, the Anabaptists had kind of rediscovered um, in their minds um, what was the New Testament pattern of baptism um, and church life. Uh, and then the English Baptists... Um, and there's a huge, there's been, you know, for about a century or more, there's been, there's been a huge debate about the relationship between the Anabaptists and Baptists as they emerge out of Puritanism. And uh, one argument would have that the, the English Baptists were basically organically linked to the Anabaptists, that they were influenced by what they had done. Another would argue, no, no, this, this, this emerges out of Puritanism. Um, and the the similarities are simply because they're both reading the Bible. Um, whatever the the truth of the matter regarding origins, um, the English Baptists um, they come to similar convictions regarding church and state relations. But they also there's another thing driving them as well, which is um, a principle that is enunciated by uh, in the Reformed tradition among Calvinist, which is that what we do in worship has to have clear mandate from the scriptures. And so the, um, the English Baptists, as they, um, they're originally, I mean, if you go back into the very early 1600s, they're, they're reformed-minded, uh, really Anglicans. They're part of the Church of England. But as they begin to look at the New Testament, they don't find in their minds any instances of infant baptism. Uh, the arguments for infant baptism are all arguments from silence in their their, their understanding. And so they, um, they begin to baptize only um, uh, adults. 
uh, believers, rather. And um, obviously, other issues come into play there, the relationship with church and state, uh, issues of religious liberty, and so on. Um, and uh, so this, this is where the, the, the issue of, um, this is where the, the, the Baptists themselves come to be quite unique among the children of Puritanism. Um, the other thing that's in, involved here too, obviously, is you know your um, by 1641, um, very early on in the Baptist tradition, uh, Baptists also become convinced not only of who should be baptized, subjects they are believers, but they also become very convinced that the mode of baptism is important, and that baptism by its very by its very definition. Uh, the Greek word baptizo is immersion. It means to immerse or to dip or to die, a D-Y-E. And um, this is a major problem for northern climate because uh, there's no indoor baptistries. They're going to have to baptize people in lakes and ponds and rivers. Well, you, 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 have, and, a, you have a fascinating section on on some of the charges of immorality or, quote, immodesty uh, leveled at at certain Baptist rituals. This is what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. So that's that, that becomes um, a bit of a stumbling block for many of the Puritans. Um, you know, okay, let's say you're right, but, you know, this is dangerous to be baptizing people in water uh, out in the open air in winter or in the cooler months of the year. Um, and then, not surprisingly, there are various scurrilous charges made against uh, Baptists during this period, one of which is they baptized uh, people in the nude, which was quite shocking um, if that's going on with you know women being baptized, men being baptized, and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You raise a, a bit of a, a conundrum between the idea of the elect with the command to spread the gospel to everyone. Why would we bother with the damned? Uh, why would we bother with... Sorry, I didn't catch that. Why would we bother uh, with people who aren't part of the elect? Why, why spread the word to them? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just the, the, the whole issue of um, baptism... Um, one of the key texts is tied to, is uh, Matthew twenty eight nineteen and twenty, uh, where Christ gives at the end of the the Gospel of Matthew what's called the Great Commission. I go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, baptism, believers' baptism, in the minds of these early Baptists, are in, is intrinsically linked to evangelism. Um, but once you because of the the, the, the overall um, theological orientation of these early Baptists is they're Calvinists. So they believe pretty firmly in the doctrine of election, uh, predestination, and that God in the gift of his son to die on the cross, uh, that death is for a specific number of people, the elect. Um and so obviously that's going to come to the fore. Um, how can we engage in gospel preaching when some of those who hear, you know, the gospel are not among the elect? And most of early Baptists, um, 
in the very early period, in the 17th century, will basically say, well, trying to determine who's among the elect is none of the business of the preacher. And so the gospel has to be given indiscriminately. This will become a major issue of debate in the 18th century. Um, it's called, in that period of time, it's called the modern question. And that is, that does God require <clears throat> saving faith of, of everybody who hears the gospel? And not surprisingly, some will push the biblical understanding of the, of the elect to its logical conclusion, a uh, conclusion that the Bible clearly doesn't make, which is that um, we shouldn't uh, preach the gospel to the non-elect. Um, and so many of these Baptist churches that have been, been flourishing in the 17th century go through a long period of, of uh, senescence and um, moribundity um, in this period. They become... Um, they go into stagnation and decline. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. One thing you single out after this is the importance of hymns to this sacrament. There was actually something quite novel or innovative about hymns arising relative to baptism, correct? Yeah, um... And um, even more generally, the hymn as a, as a, uh, in relation to the to the to the life of the the, the, the worshiping congregation. Um, again, you go back to this principle. Um, um, it's, it's technically known as a regulative principle, which is, emerges in Calvinist circles and then obviously Puritan circles, which is that God has mandated only that which is God has clearly indicated in His Word is to be done in worship. Calvin says that on a number of occasions. I'm thinking here of a passage in his commentary in the book of Daniel where he says, God is only pleased by that which he commands in his word. And they're talking specifically about worship. And um, one of the things that the the, the radical reformers, uh, the by that I mean the, the radical wing of the, the magisterial reformers, people like Holdreich Zwingli in the 1520s had done when the Reformation begins is they had basically chucked out all of the instruments out of the church. And the only thing that they sang uh, was the Psalter. Um, the early church was a cappella, um, but the early church did use other things than the Psalter, the, the Book of Psalms. But the argument made in the the very early Reformed tradition, which Calvin picks up and the, the, the Puritans inherit, which is that the only thing that is to be used in worship in terms of singing are the Psalms. And then at the end of the uh, 17th century, you start to get um, kind of pushback against this. Now, in the Lutheran tradition, that had never been the case. Uh, Luther himself was a very gifted uh, hymn writer and musician. And the singing of, of, of hymns 
uh, in addition to the Psalter, was part of that tradition. But it wasn't part of the the Reformed tradition, the, the Calvinist tradition, as we come to know it, in, in continental Europe or in the uh, Church of England, which was part of the broader Calvinist world um, in the 16th century. And um, it's only in the late 17th century that you start to find pushback against this. And it's actually among Baptists um, that the innovation, and it was an innovation, of singing uh, anything but the Psalter begins to take place. And the key figure is a man named Benjamin Keach, who initially in the 16th, late 1670s begins to, once a month, um, he would compose a hymn for the Lord's Supper service. A Baptist normally had the Lord's table once a month. And uh, then this would become a weekly event. Um, and it was very controversial. Um, the person that we know uh, probably best out of this period is Isaac Watts, who was a Congregationalist, but he was deeply influenced by the, the arguments that he knew about in Baptist churches, that we ought to sing um, more than the Psalter. And one of the arguments that Watts makes is that um, uh, we're New Testament churches, and it's, it's uh, incongruous that um, we cannot sing specifically about the person of Jesus. We can talk about the Messiah but we, if we sing the Psalter, but we can't name the Messiah who has come. And uh, he also argued that it's very clear from the New Testament, and I think he has definite support here, um, that the New Testament churches uh, expected there to be the singing of, of hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. So not only psalms. And uh, that's a, that's a quote from Ephesians five. So some of these, are the in fact, the earliest uh, Baptist hymnals that we have, um, specific hymnals, are hymnals devoted to singing at uh, hymns about the Lord's Supper or hymns about baptism. And so the ordinances were deeply tied to hymn singing um, in the uh, the early days of Baptist life. If we turn to the uh, the sacred the, the the sacred meal the, the the Lord's Supper, you say, "quote The supper conveys the assurance of salvation." Is this its uh, primary function? Would you say? Well, for for Baptists, um, it is one of probably half a dozen things that they see happening at the table. Um, the play the 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 supper is a place of um, hearing again the words of institution um, about the, the 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 death of Christ. That this is for you. Um, that um, the supper um, represents, illustrates what Christ has done for us, and therefore is a place where we we visibly see and also hear in the words that are said at the time in prayer and in the words of institution from the scriptures that Christ's death is for our sins and therefore is a place of, of assurance. Um, but Baptists would also have argued that the, the supper is a place where Christ himself nourishes our faith by his spirit. He is present among us. Um, that um, uh, the Lord's Supper <clears throat> is a place where 
Um, we again recommit ourselves to Christ. So it's a place of recommitment, rededication. And also it's a, it's a place that declares our unity with God's people. So uh, the Lord's Table is very much a an ecclesial event. It's a very much a community affair. Um, the idea, and this has been common in late medieval uh, piety, uh, that uh, the priest um, or the person presiding at the table would be able to conduct the Lord's Supper by himself. Um, that was very foreign to the thinking of these these early Baptists who are very community-minded. Uh, the supper cannot be properly had by an individual or even by just a small group mm. from the congregation. Um, it's very much um, the body of Christ gathered um, who celebrate the table. So it has a number of very distinct meanings, one of which, though, is the uh, place of uh, reassurance and assurance of salvation. Mm-hmm. You have a term called Eucharistic piety. How would you define that or characterize that? Yeah, one of the uh, one of the challenges uh, in in later Baptist life, because of the move towards a very bare memorialism, uh, certain words get dropped out of circulation, and one of them would be the word Eucharist and Eucharistic. But if you're wanting to use an adjective, and Eucharist is a very early, it's a New Testament term uh, that is used of the Lord's table. If you're wanting to use an adjective, I mean, with baptism, you can say baptismal. Or baptistic, um, with uh, the Lord's Supper, you know, you, we don't say Lord's Supperish. So, so I use the term Eucharistic as a, as an adjectival um, um, term, and um, so the Eucharistic piety then relates to all of the things, you know, much of what I've been you know talking about uh, here. Um, it's the piety which grows out of and is linked essentially to the celebration of the table and um, this was a very very, the kind of spirituality that emerges in Baptist life um, in these early years is very much a Eucharistic one as I said earlier the 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 table is a high point for these people Um, it's an essential part of their Christian experience in a way that it, 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 it loses that in the Victorian period and then into the 20th century, it, it definitely is is not there. So the book is really a plea for recovery. Um, the I really like the the French word uh, resourcement, um, the idea of retrieval, of going back to the past, retrieving riches of the past that can serve us in the present. The uh, one notion behind that. Eucharistic piety is, um, I, I found in a line where you call the supper, quote, the nearest approach to his glorious self, to Christ's glorious self, correct? Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's, a, that's a line from Ann Dutton, who was a Baptist author um, in the, authoress in the uh, 18th century. Um, a very prolific uh, figure, uh, prolific writer. And um, she has a book, um, a tract, about 50 pages, 60 pages on the Lord's Supper. And she says at one point that the closest we can come to, to Christ in this world is at the table. 
Now, not all Baptists probably would have agreed with her. Um, for many Baptists, uh, the another ordinance, uh, which is the preaching of the Word, and the word ordinance is used more broadly than simply the way Baptists use it today. Usually today, ordinance for Baptists means one of two things, either baptism or the Lord's Supper. But in the 18th century and 17th centuries, um, they would have used it more broadly. Um, prayer, uh, fellowship of the saints, of uh, believers, and um, um, preaching. So if you'd ask your, I mean, even though Baptists, the baptism and the Lord's Supper are very prominent in the spirituality of Baptists in this era. Um, preaching was given a pride of place. And so it's very unusual that Ann Dutton says this. Um, and to be honest, I've not come across it in any other Baptist author of this period. Um, and... Um, one of the striking things that um, I find when, because I a, a lot of this, what I'm doing in the book, well, some of what I'm doing in the book and writing in the book has arisen out of my teaching on this subject, uh, which is, you know, understandable given my, my calling as a teacher. And, you know, it's, it's interesting when I give students this section of Ann Dutton's work to, to, to write upon. And uh, quite a number of them, in fact, you know, I, I would say the majority of them, will will say to me, I, I I think she's a Roman Catholic author. And I say, well, no, you you've got her wrong. And it that to me is very that that illustrates the the extent to which uh, contemporary Baptist thinking and life has departed from earlier Baptist thinking, that they see this language. And immediately think, oh, this this this, this woman can't be a Baptist. Um, so it, it, but it is a somewhat unique phrase. Um, and um, but on the other hand, it, she does capture the 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 the, the high emphasis um, that Baptists uh, placed upon the Lord's Supper in this period. You you end the book with with six theses. Uh, on, on these issues. Well, the first one is baptism and Lord's suppers are in the very essence of the church. Two, they are the means of grace uh, through the Holy Spirit. Uh, three, they are the public sign. Baptism is the public sign of the new covenant. Uh, the fourth one is the Lord's Supper recommits Christians to their Lord and to one another. Uh, the next one uh, refers to the altar call as something that undermines uh, the meaning of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and last, that these sac sacraments are genuinely revolutionary. Uh, do, do you want to say any final word about the altar call or the revolutionary nature of these sacraments? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the one of the key questions, and there are a number of ways of answering this, and I think it's given the complexity of human beings and church history, uh, you one has to recognize that there are always going to be a, a variety of reasons why certain things change. And so one of the big questions that I wrestle with in the book is why, why did Baptists lose this tradition that I've been talking about, this, this very early uh, reflection and thinking? And um, one of the reasons is the emergence of what historians call revivalism in the, in the 19th century, um, where what is stressed is the 
church as a place of conversion rather than a place of Christian nurture and uh, community <clears throat> community involvement, so to speak, uh, the church becomes a place where people are converted. And um, the Lord's Supper in the minds of Baptists in the 19th century uh, was not an ordinance or a sacrament that converted people, and thus the, it falls into abeyance. But at the very same time, you have the the emergence of this thing called the altar call, um, which was the invitation of men and women to come down to the front of a church building or um, an auditorium where a Christian service was being held to uh, commit themselves to Christ publicly or to rededicate themselves to Christ. Um, the language also called is, you know, it's an 1830s, 1840s language. Um, a Methodist preacher by the name of Phoebe Palmer, um, very prominent female preacher in Methodist circles in the 19th century, actually coins the term. But by the end of the 19th century, it's being used regularly um, in Baptist circles. And in fact, in the 20th century, it becomes a sine qua non of, of Baptist churches. Mm. Um, um, if you don't do this, then uh, you're really not being evangelistic. You're not really being, you know, true to the, the, the Great Commission. And what the altar call does is it usurps the place, number one, of baptism, because Baptists had been committed to the idea that baptism is the place where faith is declared and faith discovers itself, as it were. And then the Lord's Supper is the place of rededication. The Lord's Supper is where I publicly commit myself again to Christ and to his people. And so um, one of the things that we have to think through in Baptist circles is what is the nature of this thing we call the altar call in relation to the ordinances and has a stress, as I argue, upon the altar call um, uh, usurped the, the place of the, the sacraments, and um, that, that, that's a that's a very very important question. Okay, the the book is amidst us our beloved stands recovering sacrament in the Baptist tradition. Professor Haken, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been a delight. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.